is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Welcome back to the Relatable Voice podcast. On today's episode, the RV is headed to London to speak to Simon Prentice. Originally from the UK, Simon is an interpreter, translator, and author. His latest book, Speech, How Language Made Us Human, is out now. So, Simon, welcome to the RV. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the ride. I'm super happy to be in London. So, Simon, how long have you been speaking Japanese? I started when I was 24. So that's uh, an awful long time ago. Um, <laughs> can't do the math, but it's about 45 years, something like that. <laughs> wow. And why did you decide to learn Japanese? Um, because I went to Japan, I was very interested in a, a martial art called Aikido, uh, which I had run into at university, and I felt I must go and see the country where this wonderful art was invented. And I didn't expect to learn Japanese. In fact, I didn't think about it, really. I thought, oh, I'll go there, there'll be people who speak English, you know. But after about three days, I realized I'm going to have to learn this language. And uh, I was working at a school with children, and um, I say children, they were teenagers. I was supposed to be teaching them English, but they taught me Japanese more than I taught them, which is rather embarrassing. But uh, <laughs> I, I found that I could learn the language much more easily than I thought. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give it another year, I'll give it another year. And then one thing led to another, and I was there for about eight years. And in between times, I realized that I have to learn to, to read the language as well, because obviously the problem from a Westerner's point of view with Japanese is you can't read it. I mean, if you learn, if you want to learn German or Spanish or, you know, any European language, you can pretty much read it. Even Russian is, you know, not too difficult, but yeah. Japanese yeah. is a different ballgame. And mm -hmm. I joined an interpreting, sorry, a translation company um, just to try and get myself to force myself to learn to read Japanese. So that was that, that was a bit more hard work, but uh, it, it came quite easily. I mean, like every language, I'm sure you know, you immerse yourself in the culture, you immerse yourself in, in that world, and you can, you can learn much quicker than you think, you know. And then, Simon, being an interpreter and translator must be so interesting. 
can you tell us more about your career, how you got started and where it led you? Okay, um, well, I originally, as I, as I said, I wanted to learn to read Japanese because I felt if I can't read the language, then there's a limit to what you can learn. You know, every language you have to be able to read really to get the the uh, the higher vocabulary and all that. So I, I joined a translation company and they uh, originally I was checking English and then uh, I gradually got to the point where it was faster for me to translate from Japanese into English than it was to correct the English because sometimes it was so bad I had to you know it took me it took longer to correct than to just translate so i gradually became a translator kind of by accident um, <laughs> and then i realized that it was you know you could make quite a good living about being a translator if you were prepared to learn to do technical documents and things so i was working in japan with a lot of technical companies translating things into english for, for all that so that that was my sort of original way into it and then as my spoken japanese became better i thought well maybe i could maybe i could be an interpreter so i uh i started i did a one-year training course to be an interpreter while i was in japan and uh, i came back to england and i thought oh i'm qualified now i can get a job i'll be an interpreter but you know it doesn't work like that it's sort of being an interpreter in particular is unless you have a full-time job maybe with the united nations or perhaps with a company that has a special need if you're a freelance interpreter work is is kind of uh, you have to take anything that comes along basically and so i registered with the japanese embassy in london and i registered with agencies and i just waited for whatever came along and uh, I was lucky that I, I got some very interesting jobs but you said earlier that it must be an interesting job well I think as a translator it depends what you're working on it can be interesting it can be extremely boring but it, the challenge nonetheless of of working between two languages is something I find completely fascinating it almost doesn't matter what it is it's just how do you change one person's way of expressing something into another way that means the same thing and happens to be in a different language. It's just, it's a fascinating task that you can never complete because it can never be perfect, perfect. Yeah. Just as, as what I'm saying in my own language is never perfect. You know, I'm only able to say what occurs to me right now, but I could probably have said it in a different way or a better way. And the same thing happens with translation. You know, it's never perfect. Yeah. So, that's 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 was very interesting but to me being an interpreter was more interesting because i never knew what was coming next you know and especially at the beginning of my career as an interpreter an agency would phone up and say oh go to this company in the midlands somewhere where they're making you know grinding wheels because they've got some guy from japan and it's like okay and you you show up and you've never been to that environment before and you suddenly see a whole world that you never saw and then the next next time it's sort of oh okay uh we have somebody who's uh, working on a sewage farm would you go down there and help them out with <laughs> doing a study of the sewage or, or whatever you know it can be anything and so for me working as an interpreter was not just the linguistic challenge it was also the ability to just enter into worlds that you would never otherwise see 
And you're not just going into the world as a spectator, you're actually right in the middle of the world because they need you there because they've got a problem. So you're generally working right at the heart of the business and it's you just walk in and then walk out again. It's the most wonderful job. <laughs> I, I can relate so much with it. I love studying languages and I think it's also fascinating. And you've won many hats with your work with language as well as television production. And other than your book, what has been your biggest career highlight? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think probably certainly from the outside, people would probably think it was working with Paul McCartney because I got that job. It was really bizarre. It was one of those things I just said, you know, the phone rings, and you never know what's coming next. And uh I, I'd been on the road with a Japanese film crew doing some story I can't remember. And I'd come home after three weeks. I was exhausted. And there was a, a, a message on my answer phone. And I listened to it. And it said, uh, can you go to Tokyo on Monday? Because we've got a very urgent job. And it was uh, Fuji Television, who I'd been working with. And I thought, oh, God, no, I can't. I'm too tired. I can't possibly go to, you know, this is a Friday night. So um, I ignored it. And then Saturday morning, the phone rang and it was this time it was Dentsu, which is the Japan's leading advertising agency. And they said, we have a job on Monday in Tokyo, which we really need you to come and do. Would you would you do it? Could you do it? And I thought, hang on a sec. Would you tell this? Uh, what, what is this important job? Yeah. <laughs> said, Paul McCartney's manager is going to negotiate a new contract with the, you know, with the sponsors and so forth, and they need an interpreter. Would you, would you go? And I thought, you know what? I think I'll make an exception. Perhaps I can. I would. <laughs> so, yeah. So again, there I was. Suddenly, I'm right in the middle of a business that I'd never really known about before. I mean, sort of what goes on behind the scenes at major. Uh, concerts, you know, it's an extraordinary business. And so suddenly, boom, I'm right in the middle of it. And uh, anyway, they they liked what I did. And they said, well, you have to come back for the tour and you can be Paul's personal interpreter. And I thought, mm, okay, all right, then. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> not bad, not bad. So I did. And, and it was, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I don't know if I can call that my complete career highlight, but it's certainly, you know, been a, an extraordinary moment. I mean, to find yourself sitting backstage with Paul McCartney, just the two of you teaching him Japanese. Hey, that's got to be fun, hasn't it? <laughs> it's like you were there seeing what people don't see and yeah. living yeah. that whole environment. It must have been very nice. And yeah. And Simon, things get lost in translation all the mm -hmm. time, you know. This. Yes. So can you give us an example of an interpreter blooper that you've experienced? Oh, yes, I can. I can give you a very good one. Oh, it's so embarrassing. I will never forget this the day I, to the day I die, probably. Um, I mean, it wasn't that bad, but it was... I was asked to interpret for uh, Tadao Ando, who is one of Japan's leading architects. And 
he had just won the gold prize for architecture at the Royal Institute of British Architects. Every year they choose somebody, some world architect. So he, he'd won the gold medal and, and at the ceremony you have to give a speech. And I'd been doing some work with them and they, they phoned up and said, would you interpret for him at his speech? And I thought, okay. It's a bit kind of high profile because, you know, you have all the architects, the famous architects and artists and people in London coming to listen to this guy. And I'd never met him and I didn't know a huge amount about him. So I, I had to, you know, obviously before the speech, you get an hour to sit down and just talk through. And he, and he was saying, well, listen, no, 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 come on. I don't have a script. I'm just going to talk. Is this is whatever. Don't, don't worry. It'll be fine, you know. And the thing was, he had a really strong, uh, an, uh, he's from Osaka, and he's this, you know, he's a street fighter kind of thing. He was a boxer as a, as a young man, and then he became interested in architecture, and he speaks really like a, you know, kind of rough Japanese, or he can do, you know, when he's relaxed, he can speak in a sort of polite way, but if he, when he relaxes, it's, you know, so anyway, he's, He's giving this talk, and I can see in the front row there are all these, you know, famous people, Sir Norman Foster and Sir Anthony Caro and people like that. And uh, so it's, it's a slightly high-profile, scary experience. Anyway, he's he starts telling the stories of his life, and he starts to relax, and it gets, he speaks faster. And and, and the other thing is, he, I'm not sitting next to him. I'm He's at one side of the stage, and I'm at the other side of the stage. It was a crazy environment. It was a horrible way to do it. And he's anyway, he started telling the story, and he said, so uh, so when I built this, uh, I, he said, I built my own office when I was successful. I decided to design my own office, and, and, I, and I built, uh, um, he was talking about this window that he built. And then he said, and the, the reason why I built that window is that he said, one day, one day I was in the office, and a little came, came in. I didn't hear what he said. It's like he said a little something came in, is what he said. I didn't hear what the something was. He said, oh, came in, you know. And I thought he meant, from the context, I thought he meant a little job came in. So I translated it as a little job, thinking, because sometimes, you know how it is when you're interpreting, you have to just go for it. You have to sort of guess your way through it, and you can correct yourself. And anyway, I said a little job came in, and he just turned to me and he said, what about the dog? And I realized that what he'd said was dog, not job, okay. right? And, uh, and, like, and, and I, I said, uh, yeah, what about the dog? <laughs> and he said, I said, a little dog came in, okay? And uh, so I had to apologize. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I'll correct myself. A little job, <laughs> a little dog came in, you know, which caused everybody to laugh, which was fine. But then, and then the reason was, he was telling the story because that he made the little window in the building for his dog so that the dog could look out through the window. That was the point of his story. So without the dog, he couldn't. <laughs> uh, anyway, you just have to develop a, a thick skin and, and get on with it because you, you're always going to make a mistake. And in fact, I remember my tutor when I was, uh, when I was learning, I told you I did an interpreting course. He was Australian. And he said, you're going to have to, you're always going to make a mistake. There is going to be a point when you're going to make a mistake. And he said, if you're going to make a mistake, go for it. In other words, confidently make the mistake. 
because nine times out of 10, you probably will be right. Because if you're listening to the flow of the conversation, most people, you can tell where the conversation is going. So even if you miss a word, you can probably make a guess that is close to it. And also people repeat themselves so that you have a chance to correct it later on. So it's better to be confident, to confidently make a mistake than to go, uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, I didn't. Uh, because if people get the idea that you don't really understand what's going on, then they stop believing in you. You, yeah. you have to present a confident front. And it's not about, that's not about cheating. It's about actually giving a good service as an interpreter because you, you need, people need to feel confident in you and you need to feel confident then. And, you know, you can correct yourself, as I said, it's, it's, there's no shame in correcting and saying, I'm sorry, I misheard that. Yeah. This is what he actually said. But if you do it with confidence, then people will accept that. But if you're going, oh, I'm, uh, I'm not, I mean, you might just, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, then that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Simon, communication and language are yeah. very different. Yeah. And as it is the case with animals, actually, I was reading your article about it. And yet, humans tend to have the most amount of communication problems how <laughs> does this tie into your book well i think that it's because what we're doing when we speak i mean any word is just a noise right you know i mean you're drinking water but that's not the language you that's not the word you used for it when you first learned the word for water what was the first word you learned for water you mean when you were growing up, when you were a little girl growing up, what was the first word you used for water? What language did you learn first? In Portuguese, I used to say agua. There you go, agua. So, okay, now you know it is water. And in other languages, in Japanese, it's mizu. In Greek, it's nero. You know, it's sort of, so we're using all these noises that just are random, really. So, you know, we're, we're using a way of, of tagging thoughts, essentially. So whatever language you're using, you're just trying to make tags so that I can hopefully convey what I'm trying to say to you. But it's not a perfect process. It's not telepathy. You can't read my mind. I'm just giving you, because you and I share the same code of English, that, that we can do it using the noises that English people make, but if I switched into Japanese, you wouldn't know what I'm I'm saying. You know, totsuzen nihongo de hanashidashitara zenzen wakannai desho. Arigato, arigato. There you go. You see. <laughs> so, so there's 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 a couple of problems immediately. I think one is, do you share the same code? Secondly do you share the same thought processes because if you don't know what i'm thinking about then it does it's hard for me to explain it to you if you're if you're not receptive to it so i, I think the communication problem language language is about attempting to communicate shall we say and if, if people are receptive to it then it works but if they're not receptive it doesn't work and because it's language is just a something that um it hangs in the air and then disappears. You know, it's it, language in itself is nothing. 
ultimately it's what's going on in my head and what's going in your head and we we have a way of trying to connect and it's a pretty good way most of the time but it doesn't always work no not always work <laughs> <laughs> with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I would like to know more about your book. Your book is called Speech. How yeah. language made us human. Can you quickly yeah. tell what the book is about? Okay, well, well, I started out, the, the starting point for writing it was really my perception that working as an interpreter, you sort of see both sides of the same uh you know issue when when something's being talked about and you you can see how both sides kind of feel that they're right and that they have a better view of it you know and particularly because the way they're talking about it is their special way of talking about it or they have ideas and that you know so both sides have this view of it so i thought this is insane you know we're all trying to do the same thing and just because you speak one language or have one culture or you you have one culture or another one that doesn't mean that it's better it's just different it's not better so i wanted to try first of all to show how that is an absurd point of view so my the original title for the book was far east far west because at the time a lot of people in in the west used to look at the far east and think they were just kind of weird somehow But what they didn't know is that people in the Far East look at the Far West and go, these guys are crazy, you know. So it's sort of, I wanted to show up that both sides were misunderstanding the situation. And so then the question becomes, well, how do we get into that situation in the first place? And obviously we get there because we have language. So how does language start? Where does language begin? And I started reading about it and I realized that, that there is no answer to that, that, you know, you go into the academics and they'll go, oh, oh, we don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's a mystery, you know, something happened in our brain one day and, uh, and we can speak, you know, well, well, why didn't it happen in the brain of a dog then? Oh, that's just because our brains are bigger. Oh, and, uh, and some, some mutation, you know, so I thought, um, I'm sure that might be true but there might be a better explanation and then I, then i thought about japanese and english and i realized that when you speak english i don't know if you know this there are there are 44 sounds that i'm using the phonemes you know the consonants and the vowels and in spanish it's different i think it's spanish is something like is it 38 39 something like that i'm not sure i don't know each language has a different number of sounds <laughs> that they use Now, Japanese has only 20, 
right? Wow. And then I read, I read a paper that somebody had written about how you can look across the world and there is a kind of a, a gradual decrease in the number of phonemes. You, if you go from Africa, and the oldest languages that we know about, or the ones with the longest pedigree and tradition, are the click languages. And they have about 150 noises that they use, right? Now, on the other hand, if you go all the way down into South America, into the jungles of the Amazon, which is the furthest that the humans went from Africa, guess what? They have only 11 sounds, right? Three vowels and eight consonants. That's it. Now, you think, how can you speak with that number of noises? But actually, it's not very difficult because... When, when you speak, you, you, you speak in syllables, right? You don't speak in consonants and vowels, you speak in syllables, like um, hello is two syllables, right? So to make a syllable, you need the basic minimum, you need one consonant and one vowel, right? La-di-da, right? Uh, that's, that's three syllables. Okay, so if you have a language with eight consonants and three vowels, then you can make eight times three, 24 syllables, right? That gives you 24 syllables, yes? Now, if you have two syllables, then you can have 24 times 24 different sounds. And if you have three syllables, it's 24 by 24 by 24, I'll spare you the maths, it's about 13,800 words. So you don't need many noises to make lots of words. So then you go back and you think, oh, well, okay, so why did they have 150 different sounds in Africa? That's pretty strange. Why would you need so many? And the answer that I come to is that probably what happened is when we were, before we had language, we made lots of noises, like, you know, dogs and cats and cows and other animals make noises. Like, you know, you can bark in a number of ways. You can go, or, or, you know, there, there are different noises that you could, that animals make, but they're only noises. It's when you put them together that you can make combinations of noises, and then you can make words, lots of words. So the first step in language must have been putting noises together, uh... not grammar or anything like that. And then, then you can make more words, and once you've got words, you know what it's like when you learn another language. You must have experienced it yourself. You start by learning words. You know, how do you say water in German, right? Wasser. Or how do you, then, then, you know, so water, if you say water, then somebody will give you water. Or then you need, you know, bread or sausage. But then only when you have a few words, quite a lot of words, do you go on to the grammar. Because grammar is no use without words. So anyway, that I, I, I wanted to explain that language is essentially random it's just the noises that we happened to use when we found the first way of doing it and and they evolve and so you have a language and then the language allows you to talk about things so the first things you want to talk about is how do you do things you know how how are we going to cook this thing how are we going to catch that food how are we going to build a house how are we going to make clothes how all, all the practical things come and so every language develops its own little culture and then sooner enough you go on to well 
why 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 anything why are we here what oh, oh, what's what's the reason oh oh it must be that 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 god that i saw over there or, or whatever it is so each then language comes up with a story about why they're here and then you have an then then you start to have an identity oh we're the people that have believe in this god and build houses this way and cook food this way and all you have little cultures all independent ones but they're all doing the same thing just different ways and then well the, the problem that we now really have to deal with is it's not a problem it's a beautiful problem but the world is now so small that we can all run into each other and we can all communicate and we have to learn to understand and accept each other's cultures but go beyond them because more importantly than anything else we're human we are human and we're doing the same things just differently and it's not that i'm better than you or you're you know better than me or anything like that we're, we're just different and we need to share that understanding and where does that go it goes to ultimately a world where you don't have war and look what's happening now in ukraine it's like, I mean, just today, I don't know if you saw it, Antonio Guterres said, war is an absurdity in the 21st century. And he's absolutely right. It is an absurdity in the 21st yeah, century. It is. And why are we just sitting there going, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. Yeah, there is. It's called the United Nations, and there is a way to work it out. And that's my book. At the end of my book, I, I go through what the United Nations should be doing, could be doing. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, sorry, that was a long sort of... Um, that's okay. And also, you mentioned how culturally we tend to have a superior complex when it comes to other cultures. Can totally. you explain how language contributes to that? Yes, I think it's simply that. For most people who don't have any experience of another culture and don't speak another language, or maybe they do, but not not very well. It's very hard to understand that other cultures have exactly the same kind of depth and 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 breadth than that your own one does. And and particularly if you don't speak another language, when somebody is speaking your language with an accent or not speaking it properly, it sounds like a sort of a mental problem, you know. It sounds like you're not, you know, there's some, there must be something wrong with your head, you know, that you can't speak my language properly. Now, the most beautiful evidence that that is true for me is, I mentioned the tribe in, in South America called the, they're called the Piraha tribe. They only have 11 sounds in their language, right? Now, they apparently, the word they use for their own culture means literally straight head, right? And the word they use for other cultures, meaning a foreigner, is crooked head, you know, like not straight, uh -huh. like crazy. So, I mean, that's just right at the core of it. It's like you, everybody thinks of their culture, everything about it is natural, right? Because it's just natural, you know. I mean, speaking English is God's language, right? <laughs> and, and all these foreigners who can't speak English properly, I mean, what's wrong with them? That's that's the core of it, I think. I, I mean, I, I think it's a, there's a natural superiority, just as there is with individuals. You know, individuals tend to think that they're right. You know, I mean, one of the first problems you have when you get into a serious relationship with anybody is you figure out 
well, I'm right and they're, they're not right. You know, I mean, you, you have these arguments based on, on that because everything that you've assumed, unless you've had a reason to question it, is right, right? I'm right. You know? and, and especially if your culture has gone around and conquered half the world like, like Britain did, you know, I mean, you think, well, here's the proof that we're right. We, we just killed all the foreigners. So not only are they can't speak our language properly, they're clearly stupid and weak and wrong. So we must be right, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it, all the psychological factors are there. Yeah. It's exceptionalism. It's- yeah, I agree. And, you know, Simon, when I started this podcast, I I had some challenges because I thought, mm, I don't know if people will want to listen to someone who, who has an accent or if people are going to understand what I'm going to say. And then I said, no, I, I'm going to do it. Anyways, I want it. Yeah. And I think that uh, people understand what I'm saying. And in my opinion, when I see someone speaking, for example, Portuguese with an accent, I I can tell you that I really like listening to different accents. Even in English, most of the time I know where people are from, even English from the US. Uh, I know the parts of the US they are. And I think accent is, is just the way you are. And there is no reason to be ashamed or to be, because many people who want to learn a new language, they are concerned about, am I speaking right? Am I speaking with a strong accent? So what is your advice to anyone out there trying to learn a new language? Just remember that the person you're speaking to can't speak your language, you know? you have a whole world that they're not even aware of um so be confident in that to begin with you know it's not that you are incapable you are perfectly capable within your own culture and your own language and you're reaching out to the other people they should be grateful to you you know they should be grateful that you're making the effort because they're not making the effort and that's the thing that annoys me most about um you know english-speaking culture because because it has become the default language of the, of the world, you know, people think they don't need to bother anymore. They're, they're, which would be, in itself, that wouldn't be a problem. But what goes with that is that, as I said earlier, you know, if you can't speak English properly, there must be something wrong with you, you know. My poor wife, whose English is perfectly adequate and manages very well, if, if people will give her a chance, finds and I see it happening you know people will you just oh you've got an accent oh okay well now I have to make an effort you know it's just please you know just get over yourself it's not about the language it's about the communication and it's about the willingness to meet somebody as a human so my advice to people is and especially this was true in Japan because Japanese people are very very hesitant about making mistakes. They don't want to make a mistake. They're not so much worried about an accent as making a grammatical mistake. You know, what would happen if I said something wrong? People would judge me. It's like, well, yes, maybe they will, but that's their problem, not your problem, you know. And furthermore, the only way that you're going to get better is if you use your language, you know. 
if you make a mistake and you'll probably find out pretty quickly hopefully in a nice way not in a bad way but that's how you improve you know uh, that's the only way you improve and look at children little children they they don't they make lots of mistakes and people don't say anything to them because oh they're children you know but somehow because you're an adult they don't you they don't give you that sort of um the grace to just make mistakes but they're you know they're the problem not you wonderful so simon are you currently working on anything you'd like to share with us um well i've got a i've got there are three more books that i want to write and um i'm sort of working on all three of them at once as i usually do <laughs> uh there's a book that i've been working on for a very long time and i'm finally this is now the moment to to do it which is a, a study of uh of frank zappa do you know frank zappa he was an american musician so um you asked me earlier about high points in my career well i I actually knew him and worked with him over a period of about 10 years and that was uh since I am a super fan of his music that was probably a career highlight for me. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh he he actually wanted me to write a book with him before he died and we never got time to do it. So um I have to now do that. That's yeah. my task. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I also want to write a book uh which the the title is um talking funny for money oh, and, <laughs> which is kind of going to be funny stories about interpreting experiences and things that uh, went wrong and it was actually uh, one of Paul McCartney's band members the second tour I went on with them he, he ran into me and he said oh Simon hey good to see you, man you still talking funny for money <laughs> and I thought Holy crap that is the that is a book title. <laughs> you see that's how he saw it. That is how he saw it. Talking funny for, you're talking funny. Talking funny for money. Oh that's too good. As a I mean I have to write a book just because of that phrase, you know. Yeah. Because there are so many stories that can go into that talking funny for money. Are you going to publish it? this year still in 2022 i got to do the the frank zappa book first and then i'll do the other one after that okay. so that means that uh, i will years. be talking funny with you in 2023 yeah. absolutely absolutely yeah. <laughs> and simon where can our listeners find this book and of course find you online or instagram if you have a website the best contact point because it's got all the other information on it is my website which is www.simonprentice.net and which is easy enough um and i'm also getting used to using twitter these days i have a twitter handle called memes over genes which is again a kind of like a coded reference to the message of the book which is that we may be what our genes make us but the reason why humans are different is because we use memes memes are like ideas essentially so memes are more important than genes so the word was coined by Richard Dawkins who he meant it as an idea basically he was trying to think of a because humans the evolution of humans is so 
dramatically changed my language. He was trying to think what's the what's like a gene. A gene is something that changes your body, but only slowly changes with evolution. Whereas ideas, he called memes, they they change all the time. So memes over genes means memes are more important than genes for humans. You know? Exactly. So Simon, thank you. No, Simon. Arigato. Which means you're welcome. Thank which, you. Which I taught to Paul McCartney by saying, don't touch your mustache. 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 Okay, so don't touch your mustache. Don't touch your mustache. Don't touch your mustache. Okay, I learned it. Don't touch your mustache. You got it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.